The Pull is brought to you by the North American Handmade Bicycle Show, the world's premier annual gathering of bicycle frame builders and frame building enthusiasts. The 2019 show will take place March 15th to 17th at the Sacramento Convention Center in Sacramento, California. We hope to see you there. Red Kite Prayer is hosting its first ever event October 12th through 14th, 2018, the Red Kite Rendezvous. The two and a half day event will feature bikes from some of the industry's top frame builders, two gravel rides, some of the world's finest craft beers, which are brewed locally, plus enough food to make the pedaling fun. For more information or to register, go to redkiteprayer.com backslash store. From Red Kite Prayer, I'm Patrick Brady with The Pull. On this week's show, my guest is Nick Legan, the author of Gravel Cycling from Fellow Press. Legan has one of the more varied backgrounds I've encountered in cycling. He began his career as a race mechanic, first working for Slipstream Sports and then working for Lance Armstrong's Radio Shack team. He founded a bike shop in Boulder, Colorado called The Service Course, but wasn't content to restrict his career to bicycle retailing and began writing tech articles for VeloNews, where he went on to become the tech editor. Legan's next move was to the PR side of the cycling industry, where he worked with editors from magazines and websites on behalf of clients like Shimano. That he stepped away from that job to re-enter the world of journalism surprised many, especially as he often explained Shimano's products better than many Shimano employees could. Since then, he has launched his own blog, Rambler, and joined Adventure Cyclist as one of their tech writers. Plus, each year he serves as a judge for the awards at the North American Handmade Bicycle Show. Since the publication of Gravel Cycling, Legan has gone deep on gravel riding in its many forms, including bikepacking. He recently completed the Tour Divide, and I wanted to talk to him about his longest adventure yet. Well, Nick Legan, man, been too long. How are you, dude? I'm doing all right. I'm conscious right now, which is good. I'm not, I'm not <laughs> napping. You didn't catch me during a nap, so I'm good. Okay. Uh, you've been back, what, about 10 days now? Yeah, that's almost exactly right. Yep. And uh, how, how many naps a day are we averaging? I'm guessing the question isn't like how many days have you napped, but how many <laughs> naps per day the count is. Well, initially, it really was like two or, two or three day per day. Um, it, and part of that's because we, we finished late. We finished at like 1 a.m. And when you get to the New Mexican, Mexican border, you're not close to a hotel. So, you know, you hang out at the the finish line for a little bit. And then, you know, by the time you get to your hotel, my wife picked me up, got to the hotel. And by the time I was showered, which felt awesome. And I was in bed, it was like 4am. And then we were up and rolling by nine to head home and drove 12 hours. And then we stayed with my in-laws. And so it was, it was actually like two or three nights before I got to my own bed where I could get like a good 12 hour sleep. Um, oh. so naps, naps were pretty vital, uh, in wow. that recovery. Yeah. Well, we've gotten a little bit of this out, out of sequence here. Uh, my bad. Um, bad, Patrick. Uh, you know, for readers who aren't familiar with what you've been doing, understandably, sure. yeah. tell, tell you're just back from the Tour Divide. Yes. Please describe that for our listeners. Sure. Well, it, it'll involve a, a short explanation. Um, it starts with the, something called the Great Divide Mountain Bike Route, which is a route that in 2018 is actually celebrating its 20th anniversary. It's a route that was um, developed by the Adventure Cycling Association and uh, at the, with the leadership of uh, Mac McCoy. Um, and in full disclosure, I write for their member magazine. That's kind of my day job. So I, I'm pretty close to that. Um, so the Great Divide Mountain Bike Route uh, currently, actually, as of this year, it actually goes from, Jack's, I'm sorry, from Jasper um, to Banff in Canada, then into the United States and follows fairly closely, uh, on more roads than trail, um, the continental divide all the way to the Mexican border. So it takes in parts of Alberta, British Columbia, Montana, Idaho, Wyoming, 
Colorado, and New Mexico. And um, the, the Tour Divide then is a race that takes place on that. And we have a very specific route. There are certain alternates along the way that we're required to take. Um, and it's right around 2,700 miles. And the idea is that it's fully self-supported. Um, you're not allowed to share resources. You're not allowed to have anything dropped off for you along the way. Um, you're not supposed to draft, for instance. And about 160 people started this year southbound from BAMP. And then I think it was 10 or so started northbound from the Mexican border. And the time starts at 8 a.m. on the second Friday in June. And it goes until you hit the finish line. Mm, good grief. Uh, okay, I, I have a million questions. <laughs> uh, back to the definition of road. You know, there's a, a photo on the Tour Divide website uh, that shows a double track, you know, with snow covered mountain in the background. How often was the road surface more double track than like California style fire road? Sure. So the, the breakdown, as I understand it, and I'm sure someone can, can uh, correct me, but my understanding is about a third of the route is paved of the tour divide route. Now, if you mm -hmm. want to be hardcore, you can, the tour divide route takes in a bit more pavement um, to avoid areas that have essentially impassable mud when wet. Um, to make it more of a race uh, that, that has a sporting chance uh, year to year. So the Tour Divide route is about a third paved. Uh, and then the majority of it after that um, is uh, a dirt or gravel road, sometimes a double track like you see with the, the grass growing down the middle. Uh, and oftentimes we're riding on forest service roads that are closed to traffic, which is awesome um, mm -hmm. because you don't have to worry about traffic. Um, you see more bear scat than you see anything else, which is another, you know, exciting thing. Um, <laughs> and then there, there are small sections of single track. Um, but the, the total mileage of single track is I would bet under 20. So, mm. wow. So okay. I, I mean, they call it the great divide mountain bike route. I think that's because 20 years ago, that was the best way to describe the route. Mm -hmm. Now it's kind of like, um, I would call it like mega gravel, you know, like, it's, I wouldn't encourage you to ride a gravel bike, um, but, but it is a lot of gravel road riding. Okay. Okay. Give us some sense. How many days does it take the average participant to finish? Um, and what does that break down in terms of daily mileage most likely? Um, you know, I don't have a good sense of what the average finisher is the, 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 the range, the, the record is 14 days and change, uh, uh, set by Mike Hall, may he rest in peace, uh, a couple of years ago. The winners this year did uh, just over 15 days. And then Tour Divide, typically uh, the, the people who kind of unofficially um, organize it say that if you're inside 30 days, you're, you're still on racing pace. If you go outside a 30-day pace or if you fall behind, I think it's a 90-day, I'm sorry, a 90 miles per day average for more than three days, they put you into a a different colored dot saying that you're essentially touring. Um, I managed to finish in 24 days and just under 17 hours. Um, so I was pretty happy with that. And so in three days more than the tour de France takes, <laughs> you did an extra six, 700 miles. And I carried all my stuff and I bought all my own food and I did all my own massage and, and you I didn't have, draft. And I have the utmost respect for the Tour de France racers. Yeah. Um, but yeah, what we do is hard. Uh, managing yourself and your effort and getting enough rest to think clearly so you can make good decisions, so that you can buy enough food and you don't run out of water and all these sorts of things. Um, it, it, it is wildly uh, stressful uh, at times, and it is extremely mentally tasking. Um, physically, obviously, but but much more of tour divide uh, occurs between the ears than it does uh, kind of in your legs and your lungs. Yeah. So I'm, I'm curious to have you speak uh, about that managing yourself a little bit more. I mean, this is no normal race, you know, a lot of the, the traditional uh, uh, traits of a bike race aren't there. There's no pack, you mm -hmm. know, you're not drafting, um, you, you know, you can't really get dropped. Um, you know, not well, that, in any that said, typical sense. You, you can ride with people. Um, sure. and, and, and I did, and it, it brings a lot to the race in terms of meeting new people. Um, so 
while you're not sharing resources, you are certainly sharing time and, and um, camaraderie, which is um, that's a huge X factor. Sure. Now, uh, in terms of that managing recovery, how do you balance that against this overwhelming need to feel like you've got to be moving at all times? It's really tough, um, you know, and and I think some of it is. I know some guys and and gals that will basically ride until they have to sleep, um, and that doesn't mean they ride until dark. That in some cases, I, I talked to a friend, Greg Gleason, who last year he rode something like 360 miles nonstop at the start um, it, until he basically just couldn't keep his eyes open. He just collapsed nearly, and then he's like, "Okay, well, now I'll sleep for a while, and I'll get up and I'll get going." Um, I know that I, I need more regular sleep and I need more sleep. Um, I'm not at the front. Let, let's be really clear. I'm not at the front of this race. I'm not trying to break records. I'm in this, um, to race and to challenge myself and I'm certainly doing it for a time. Um, but I, w- I also want to enjoy it. And so that's another thing that, that comes into that equation when you're trying to manage your recovery. So, um, it's tough though. I mean, you have to be, you're constantly checking in with yourself on, you know, maybe even just things like that, that you wouldn't think about, but instead of trying to eat everything while riding, taking mm-hmm. uh, the guy, Charlie Hayes, who I rode with quite a bit, and I would just do one kind of midday, we'd call it our picnic, and you'd just pull out whatever food you had, and you'd take a few minutes to get off your bike, to let the world stop spinning, and to, and to help your body digest, and to clean up, and reapply sunscreen, or chamois cream, whatever you needed at that time, to take, to, to perform self-care, essentially. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that was great. And there were also times where we stopped short. Um, you know, there was, uh, so I averaged, I think it was, I think it was 105 or so miles, give or take uh, five miles per day. But the thing to understand with that is it's not like I rode 105 miles every day in and out. I had a day that was 23 miles. I had six days that were under 100. But then I had a lot of days that were well over 100, I think 140 two or something. No, I'm sorry. The last day, 173 was our longest day in terms Ooh. of mileage. Um, so the, it's, it's tough, uh, that ebb and flow, you have to be able to, to kind of roll with it and you, you kind of have to have some mental agility to mm-hmm. continually reassess your situation and make good decisions. Yeah. Yeah. I can, I can see how challenging that would be. Now, you said you were upwards of 100 miles a day on average. How many hours of sleep were you permitting yourself per night? Um, I, yeah, that's, it, it varied actually a fair bit. Um, there were days where you know we took a 23-mile day into Lima because we had, basically we woke up to like standing water in our tents and our, and our baby bags uh, in the group we were in, and it was just – we were freezing. And we went into Lima, Montana to have a good dry out and recover We'd been pushing really hard for a week and been rained on basically every day that week. Um, and so it, we just needed a reset. And, um, you know, so that day I got a lot of sleep. I mean, I probably got eight hours sleep before we got up and rolling the next morning. And we got up pre-dawn and we were going early. But we had naps that afternoon and more food. But on average, I'd say five to six hours. Uh, okay. and, and that's – I think I do sleep more than a lot of people, certainly more than the people who are doing 15-day um, sure. Those guys are, are just killing it. Well, I mean, you've got to cut something if you're going to come in a week before you did. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. And that, I mean, they, they ride faster and some of those guys, uh, you know, Leo Wilcox as an example who holds the women's record a year, uh, when she broke the record, she didn't have a single sit down or hot meal. She ate everything on everything she got was to go. Um, and she rides mm-hmm. fast. And she doesn't sleep much. You know, it's it's incredible what, what some of those people at the front can do. Okay, let's for this context define fast. <laughs> uh, yeah, well, for let, let's define my fast. Um, when sure. We, let's start with you. Yeah, when we were doing our kind of our mental calculations, anytime I would say anytime really, not just Tour Divide, but anytime you're on a, a loaded bikepacking bike and you can average 10 miles an hour, you're doing well. That means you're almost always climbing in single digits. Um, and then you're trying to make up some of that on descents and on flatter sections. Um, 
but the truth of it is that my moving average was far below that. So I, I remember looking down at one distinct moment though, and like feeling pretty good. And I was listening to some tunes and I was like, man, this I'm cruising. And I looked down and it was like 15 miles an hour. And I was like, man, I'm hauling. This is great. You know? <laughs> uh, yep. So you're not, yeah, fast is, that's my fast. Um, right. And, and I didn't, you know, but, but I'll also say this, the start goes off like a cross country race. The guys at the front go off so fast and, uh, it, it's impressive. I mean, it, it's really cool. I I can imagine what my response to that would be. No, no, please. After you, I'll be that was just mine. fine back here. Yeah. Yep. Absolutely. I was like, you know what? I need to. I need to not go deep here. I need to just settle into this effort as opposed to blow myself up. So yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's funny how those things like going out hot get completely redefined when the length of your event increases oh say on order of 27 times right you know yeah uh, absolutely because i mean i can remember doing uh i can remember doing crits where i thought oh we went out hot you know and you you've done you know a lap at 29 miles an hour oh yeah uh or uh, a, a semi-competitive century where I'm, you know, we're in the first 20 miles and we're on a false flat and I'm doing 22 miles an hour on a false yeah. flat and thinking, hmm, I'm not going to be able to keep this up forever. Right. Uh, you know, and, you know, yeah, you get to something that's 2,700 miles long and at 15 you're going, hmm, that's, that's a little spicy. It's, yeah, it's moving pretty good, you know. It, it, <laughs> it's all about recalibrating. and. Yeah. The, the the overwhelming theme and kind of mental uh, reminder that I gave myself was just patience. You know, have mm -hmm. if, even even to the point of like if the orders take the to go orders taking a little bit long at the restaurants, like hey, just just have patience. You know, and and having patience with myself too on bad days or good days, just knowing that it's it's going to be slow, you know, or it's going to feel slow because I like you come from a, a road racing background, a mountain bike racing background, and and you just have to readjust. Yeah. Yeah. So let's talk about your interest in doing the event. Uh, you've gone, if I may suggest, full rabbit hole on bikepacking. <laughs> I mean, you, I, you know, as the author of a book all about gravel riding, you know, it was one thing to see you transition away from, you know, more traditional road and mountain events and really, really get the bit between the teeth for, for gravel riding. And I've, I really dig that. And it's a lovely, lovely book, right? Um, of course you're going to agree. Um, <laughs> but most bike packing trips, uh, are not three weeks plus. No, um, no, clearly not. And when I think about something this long, I think about a traditional touring bike and four panniers, not a frame bag, a handlebar and a ginormous seat bag. What, what made you want to tackle this particular event? Um, well, I mean, I want to say that this, this is also something out of the ordinary for me. I mean, it's become something that is kind of in a way has consumed my life and my wife's life. Um, since about 2012 when I started training for my first attempt, um, I, this was my fourth attempt and my first finish. Um, so it, it, this is something, um, out of the ordinary for me. I mean, I don't, I, it's not like I take three week bikepacking trips for a living. Um, this is something I, you know, <laughs> yeah. this is something I've done on, uh, on the side, but it does overlap with, with my life and my work. And, and as you mentioned, thank you, uh, my book, which also covers bikepacking, um, what made me want to tackle this? Well, I, for a while I had a, a Twitter handle called at damn you, Joe Miser. Um, <laughs> Joe Miser is a, is a, an engineer at salsa cycles. And I met him in 2011 at my first dirty Kansas and he had ridden the tour, tour divide in, I think 2009. And, uh, we got to talking about it and I had seen like a lot of people, I had seen the, the Mike Dion film ride the divide. Mm -hmm. Um, and I was like, wow, that's, that's pretty, that's out there. Um, <laughs> yeah, and, and this is so push, you know, placing, uh, the scene, setting the scene in 2011 at my first 30 cans, I'd never done a double century. I'd never done a gravel event and I'd never gone bikepacking. And so to hear this guy talk about, you know, this 24 of whatever he did, I forget now, uh, day adventure, uh, self-supported. I was, I was like, man, this is, this is like Everest, you know? Mm -hmm. uh, for, for a cyclist. And, um, it was, it seemed really 
well outside my comfort zone. So I was kind of like, oh, maybe I should look into that. And so uh, to be honest, in 2013, I jumped in way too early. Um, I was just coming back from many years on the road as a mechanic. I wasn't that fit. Um, and, and while I was a boy scout and I loved camping and all that kind of stuff, I had some self-sufficiency skills. Um, I, I didn't know what I was doing. So, uh, it wasn't until this year that I really felt like not only am I fit enough, but I am capable uh, in terms of the things we've talked about earlier with just taking care of yourself. Um, and then just, I came to understand how much route knowledge really helped a lot. Uh, mm-hmm. with this particular race. So, um, yeah, I mean, we do, we carry a lot less than, than a normal touring bike with racks and panniers. Um, there's a few reasons for that. Racks and panniers are wonderful, um, uh, for paved touring and, and mild dirt roads, I would argue. But once they're going, gets a bit rougher, racks and panniers become a liability. Uh, in my opinion, they, they tend to break, um, or bolts come loose or bags come flying off. The bikes don't handle quite as nimbly um, in mm-hmm. off-road situations when you are trying to push the pace or get through a technical section. Um, and we do carry, you know, very little. I, I, I it's not like I had, um, a pair of, uh, I didn't have casual clothes, for instance. I had the kit that I was riding in and I started with two pick, two sets of chamois and I actually sent one home, um, because it just, I just wanted less to deal with. Um, you know, we don't, you don't get a shower every day. You don't, you know, wet wipes, disposable, you know, uh, flushable wet wipes become your friend. Um, mm-hmm. and, uh, and, and discomfort is part of it, you know, but anyway, um, it was just this, it became kind of my odyssey and, um, I'm really, really, really grateful to have finished it, um, with much help from many, many people. Neat. So let's talk about your rig. Uh, <laughs> what was your bike? Tell us about your bags. Sure. Uh, I rode a custom mosaic, um, bike packing bike. So it's a, a drop bar 29er, uh, minus steel Aaron Barcheck, who's won many awards at NABS. You and I have judged. Um, he is mm-hmm. a personal friend and he made me a steel. Essentially we, we looked at salsa's cutthroat and said, what would we, what would I do differently? And so we made some tweaks to the geometry, um, made it out of steel threaded bottom bracket. Um, we used a salsa cut, I'm sorry, basically a cutthroat fork. It's called the fire starter fork. It's a carbon fiber suspension, 29 suspension corrected fork, but it has bottle mounts on the fork legs, which is really yep. handy. Um, so uh, like I mentioned, I ran drop bars. I ran arrow bars. I ran a front dynamo hub, which powered my K light, uh, dynamo powered lights, these incredible handmade lights out of Australia from Kerry state. Mm-hmm. Um, off that dynamo hub, I could also, I had a USB charger so I could, Recharge. A, what I did is I recharged a cache battery, and then from that battery I could charge my DI2 battery. My bike was Shimano XTR DI2 2x11 um, with hydraulic disc brakes. I could recharge that battery. I could recharge um, my Wahoo Element. I used a little bolt uh, for day-to-day um, mileage and, and uh, data, and then I could also recharge my phone. Um, so, yeah, it, it was great. I, I ran um, a Moots tie seat post to take the edge off. Um, a Shimano XTR rear wheel, a pretty old wheel, actually. Um, tubeless tires, obviously, clipless pedals. Um, I could carry up to later in the event. I actually started without any bottle cages on my fork, um, and I purchased them as I went when I found bike shops when I needed to carry more water. Um, mm. And at the end, so I, what I started with is not what I finished with in a way. My bike evolved a little bit. Um, but by the end, I could carry six plus liters of fluid, um, which and I needed every bit of it, um, which was super. It was great, though. It was, you know, that's part of the challenge. I also I carry uh, in my bags, I carry a really small packable backpack. So it's kind of if I just need to throw a bunch of extra food and water in there to say to ride to camp then and just consume it all there. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was really handy. It was really kind of modular and uh, on demand. Kind of. Oh. That's, that's a neat idea. I like that. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, it's a good thing to have in your, in, cause I don't carry a, I don't like a hydration pack. Um, I mean, mm-hmm. I use it for shorter rides. I love, I love Camelback's chase vest for gravel racing, but for day to day, you know, especially with that much time in the saddle, I wanted to eliminate as much weight from, um, the, the saddle as possible. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, in terms of bags, I made, um, my own front roll, um, out of, uh, these kind of plastic cutting boards from, from uh, like a department store and some PVC and some webbing. 
and it worked pretty well. And then, and then that held a, a dry bag on my handlebars. And then in that dry bag was my full shelter, my sleeping bag, my baby sack, my sleeping pad. Um, I do bring a little inflatable pillow cause I sleep better with it. Mm-hmm. And then I had sleep clothes. So I had some wool boxers and a wool long sleeve shirt in there, uh, and some, and some dry socks. Um, my, I also made my frame bag. I'd made kind of a partial frame bag. Um, so I could still carry two one liter bottles inside my main triangle. And then I just had basically bike maintenance stuff. So I had a spare tube, um, a tent stake that served as a mud scraper. Um, I didn't, cause I didn't need tent stakes, but you need to scrape mud from time to time. Unfortunately, mm-hmm. uh, a little, uh, toolkit. I did carry uh, a Dyna plug, plug, uh, tubeless mm-hmm. tire plug kit, which I'm a huge fan of Dyna plug. I want to plug those guys. No pun intended. Um, <laughs> did you have I, the you new know, one with the CO2 or I is did. it the original? Yeah. Okay. No, that thing is awesome. It, that, that same Dyna plug saved me on trans Iowa earlier this year. I'm a big fan. Mm-hmm. Um, I reviewed that for, for road bike review or MTBR and it's, it's a great piece of kit. Um, I also, again, I'm, I'm, I have a bike, a background as a bike mechanic, so I probably carry a little bit more than some people. Um, because if I didn't have that little tool that I own, it would be really frustrating to me if I knew I could fix the thing, <laughs> if I had carried it. So I carry a bit more. Um, but yeah, you know, chain lube, uh, I used a, like a, a park tool brush and I cut off part of the handle, just like climbers do their toothbrushes. And, um, carried that to clean up my drivetrain uh, and it worked out really well. It's, it's looking a little worse for the wear now. So I'll probably have to make another one. Um, <laughs> and then next to my stem, I had kind of the, one of the cylindrical feed bags. So uh-huh. it's in the, in the corner of your handlebar and your stem. Um, and that was a really old one from Revelate designs, but it was fantastic. And, and that carried everything from bear spray when I started, uh, and some other knickknacks. And then once I got to Pinedale, I dumped the the bear spray and it just actually became payday storage. I I could fit like five or six paydays in there, candy bars. And, um, (laughs) and so used extra food there. And I had a really cool top two bag. It was massive. It's big enough to fit a foot long sub from subway in. Um, wow. and, And some accessories, a guy, Greg wheelwright here in Boulder, Colorado, which is nearby. I live in Longmont, um, made it Boulder bike packing, uh, Boulder without the U. Um, made that for me a couple of years ago. It's, it's J packs makes one similar. Another guy who makes fantastic bags, beautifully crafted, uh, out of Denver, Joe Tonsager makes those. He makes a bag called the Farva, um, and which is also similarly large, but it was too wide. I was hitting my knees on it. And so Greg made me one that was a little narrower and it was great because it had tons of storage for food. I carried my toothbrush, my toothpaste, um, eye drops, you know, a, a wipe for my sunglasses and then a ton of food. And then it also, he, he sewed in some extra like elastic straps on the inside that would hold that cash battery I mentioned earlier. And mm-hmm. then we had a portal, uh, down near the head tube where all the USB cords could go in and out. Um, so it was really slick. It worked super well. And then on the other side, the other elastic, I held a, a single speed cog. Um, I had a way to, to pull apart my cassette uh, a tool from Stein so I could make my bike into a, sing- a really reliable single speed if I needed to. Uh, so I carried a single speed cog in there and then some, some printed notes um, that I printed on waterproof paper in case my phone died. Cause I used my phone as a big resource. Not only was it an entertainment center and obviously a way to connect with the world. Um, but I had, um, Google docs, um, with resupplies and distances and a lot of research that I had done on the route, but mm. I printed those as a, as you always want redundancies, things do go wrong, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and then, uh, what other bags did I have? I had, um, a seat bag and I started with an Ortlieb, um, which I like quite a bit cause it's, it is a fully waterproof bag. Um, but I started with a bag that was a couple of years old and had probably seen better days. Um, so by the time I got to Salida about two thirds in, I ended up buying a bag from Ovea Negra, um, their seat bag. And, um, what had happened is the, the Ortlieb, the plastic stiffeners on the sides in the intense heat had kind of started to, to fold in a little bit. And so it made just packing the bag kind of hard mm. on a day-to-day basis. And it also meant that I, beyond those stiffeners, I, and it, the bag was usually used mostly to capacity, um, there was so much stuff beyond those stiffeners that it could hit my rear tire on a really rough descent. Oh, um, 
So that was a little nerve wracking when you're buzzing your own rear tire, like, please don't burn through my bag. Um, right. So I, so I got a new bag when I got to Salida, which was great. Um, yeah. The other piece of, uh, equipment I really want to mention though, uh, was the Redshift sports, um, shock stop stem. Yes. um, Which I I'll admit I was super skeptical when I first tried this thing. Duh. Uh, and yeah, I mean, we have, we have reason to be skeptical, um, but it works so well. It's perfect for this because as long as you, for instance, um, lock tight the preload bolt, there's, there's really nothing to go wrong and nothing did go wrong. Um, but this was the first time I've done a ride that long. Well, it's the first time I've ever done a ride that long. Let's be fair. Again, as I mentioned, I tried three times and, and wasn't able to finish, but I had hand issues, numbness and things like that in the past. And I had none of that. In fact, I started Tour Divide with a wrist injury from mm. some gravel races earlier in the year. And I got in treatment, and I, I carried some things to help take care of that. Um, by things, I don't mean narcotics. I mean <laughs> it's this stuff called Voodoo Floss. It's this elastic band, and you do compression and movement and mobility stuff. Um, mm. um, but that wrist not only improved during the ride, but I had no hand numbness. So I'm a big fan of that stem now. Um, yeah. but on the whole, my bike worked really, really well. Um, we, again, as I mentioned, we got a lot of weather up North. And so I wore through one set of pads. Um, I replaced my chain twice and my cassette once. Um, and I, thanks to the people, I think it's soul bike and ski and steamboat, my lower derailleur pulley on my XTR derailleur, the teeth were points from all the grit and mud and wow. sand. And, uh, they let me dig through their part, their used parts bin, and I found a derailleur pulley that I bolted on there, and they helped get me rolling. So, wow! Now, yeah. one a single flat tire. Yeah, one. Wow, which is pretty. Yeah, that's a that's a surprise. Carried um, all that for nothing. Two tubes, a pump, and uh, and a tube and a plug kit for nothing. I'm joking. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, now a technical question. You said drop bar 29er, and you also said XTR DI2. Yeah. What were your shifters? How did you make all that work? I used Shimano's R785 shifters. So okay. it's that first gen, um, yep. the launch was in Hawaii, the first gen hydraulic disc brake with DI2. And as long as you run XTR front and rear derailleurs, it's no problem. And actually... I ran at full synchro shift too. So yeah. I used an XTR junction box that I had mounted on my um, aero bars so I could check my battery levels really easy. Not that that's hard with other junctions, um, but that was also my charging port. Um, and I ran full synchro. So what I did is I set it up so basically one button on each shifter was for an easier gear, one button was for a harder gear, and then I also had a single button DI2 shifters on my aero bars. Um, okay. so I shift from all these positions and it was mm-hmm. awesome. Uh, I recharged my battery three or four times, maybe four or five times. And that was mostly cause I happened to be in a hotel and I was like, why wouldn't I right now? Um, mm-hmm. but I'll bet I would have needed to three or four times total. Um, the batteries last a long time. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. It's impressive. Uh, yeah. especially once you've ridden red, uh, red ETAP. Um, it's it's a big difference. Those batteries don't last as long. Yeah. Oh, okay. I haven't spent much time on red. Um, yeah. They're uh, I mean, they're also transmitting. Uh, you know, it's a great system, but it's yeah. one of those things where, you know, when you when you switch from ETAP uh, to DI2, it's almost like you could say, okay, now I don't have to worry about batteries anymore. Sure. Um, okay. I, you know, one of my bikes that's DI2, I think I've charged it four times in three years. Yeah, that's pretty normal. Yeah. It also helps that we have many bikes. Uh, I, yeah, I, I didn't want to do some some half-assed tumble brag there. Um, <laughs> I'll do it for you. Know. Okay, okay, yeah. thanks. Uh, so let's talk navigation now. Yeah. That is a long way to go without the aid of Google Maps on a day-to-day basis. Yeah. What was your system for route finding? I mean, I know they publish it, but... You know, to have a, a published route is one thing. To follow yeah. the published route when you're not on interstates or other, you know, 
signed roads, it's a little different. Absolutely. Um, so yeah, as you mentioned, uh, there is a published uh, GPX track um, that is given out, and you can then do what do with it as you as you will. Some people will go and uh, really deep and, and add in a lot of points of interest, and they'll I mean they'll spend a lot of time with that file on whatever um, software they they like to use to then put in all these like potential places to stop and all that. I'm a little bit analog in that respect. Like I I mentioned, I print out. Um, a lot of the research that I do in the years that I first, uh, first couple of years, first couple of attempts, I should say, I actually carried cue sheets and, uh, and an old school, just wireless, you know, computer. Mm-hmm. Um, and I carried a GPS, uh, GPS as, as a backup or as a, another way to do it. And the reason I did that was because at the time, and I've, I've since changed, but I, I think it's worth talking about. It kept me engaged, um, having, to use your brain to constantly be looking for that next turn or that next feature keeps you in the kind of keeps you in the game. And sometimes that's a really, really welcome. I don't want to say it's a distraction because it's vital, um, but it's a distraction from your knees hurting or you're you know, tired or things like that. Um, right. So it can, it can be a, 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 a hack or a way to kind of stay mentally uh, acute. Mm-hmm. Um, I've since moved away from it, um, partially because I've learned to trust GPSs a bit more. Um, so what I did, um, it also, I'll also say this though, I've also ridden, um, large chunks of the route before I started this year. So that, that also helps. Um, and in the years past, I carried the maps. I actually didn't carry the maps this year. Um, that said, I did have photos of the maps on my phone that I could zoom into mm-hmm. if I needed to. Um, mm-hmm. but I only did that a couple times. Um, so I used a Garmin eTrex 30X, which is uh, – it's actually made more for trekking or uh, hunters or fishermen will use it. Um, yep. it. It's powered by two AA batteries. You can also power it with a, a USB um, if you want to. Um, I'm, I really like that. Um, it, it, there are ways to make it kind of more connective as a cycling computer, but really it's, it's not really designed for that. It's not in the Edge series. I don't think it has Bluetooth or Ant Plus or any of that stuff. I think you can get little dongles to do that, but I'm not sure. Um, but I like it because it's super robust. They make a bike mount for it. So I had that as my primary navigation. I had that mounted really high on my aero bars. So it was right in front of my face. Mm-hmm. And I don't even set like off-course alarms or anything like that. I just have it – and we don't need to dive deep into like settings on your GPS. Your GPS. Yeah. Um, but I like – the that it doesn't tell me if I'm going to go off course, meaning I need to continually look at this thing and pay attention. And so Mm -hmm. while I'm riding, I'm zooming in, I'm zooming out, you know, there's a particular turn coming up or zoom out to get a sense of where I'm going. Generally, let's say I can see a weather front coming in, things like that. So it's handy in a lot of respects. Um, some people then use that same computer. It's a really popular computer for tour divide and for bikepacking. Um, because you can carry spare batteries. That's the reason. Now let's get to the point here. Uh, and, uh, some people also use that as like their daily trip computer, you know, they'll reset it each day. I just use it to follow the colored line on the screen, mm-hmm. uh, make sure that my little arrow is on that and I'm good. Um, then I also had my phone, which was a backup. I didn't end up using it for navigation, but I had ride with GPS on it and I had all the maps downloaded locally to my device. So it didn't need to be, it could be an airplane mode and still work. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I also, as I mentioned, had a Wahoo Element Bolt um, that I used for daily mileage. And I, I did have a power meter, on a Stages power meter on my bike, um, so I could use that to help regulate my effort, um, things like that. Um, but I also had the route on it, and I would use that when I was riding at night because it did have an off-course alarm. And it did. It has these kind of LEDs that are helpful in, in telling you that you're, you need to wake up and that you're an idiot, um, or that you have a right turn or a left turn coming up, things like that. Um, but I would really only turn on the navigation feature if I was like, okay, I'm going to be riding at night for a while. It's nice to have a backup and to have some annoying noises to make sure that you're on course. Yeah. Yeah. I can imagine. Wow. And then I'll, I'll admit this though. And, and I know, you know some people might, uh, deride this, but when you're riding with other people too, though, it's, it becomes part of your conversation. I wrote a lot with Laura Anderson of Boulder, who I had never met before, which is funny because we live within 12 miles of one another. 
And a guy named Charlie Hayes, who also lives in Boulder, who had been a long time kind of friendly acquaintance. I didn't even know he was doing Tour Divide. I saw him at Denver Airport on the same flight as me. And I was like, what are you up to? And he was like, oh, I'm going to Tour Divide. No way. And we ended up riding a ton together. And you'll be talking. And then while you're talking, you're eating, you're drinking, you're putting on sunscreen, you're brushing your teeth, you're, and you're continually looking at your GPS. So you'll also then say, oh, hey, right turn coming up in the middle of a sentence. And then you'll just carry on your conversation. And they'll reply to you saying whatever the conversation was. And yes, Roger, that right turn coming up. And they'll have then confirmed it. Um, so you do wow. share duties a little bit, which is, you know, perhaps technically against the rules, but y- y- that strikes me as just civility. That's exactly it. Thank you for putting it so succinctly. Yeah. 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 What was your favorite moment in the trip? I'm, you know, I'm sure there were dozens, you know, several dozens, but, you know, talk to me about. One of those truly unforgettable moments where you're just going, pinch me, please. I want to make sure I really am here. There were a lot. Um, I mean, I, I have to say finishing. the finish. I know that's a little bit obvious, but when you've failed three times to finish that fourth time, it means a lot. Um, yeah, I can imagine. And, and what was interesting to me about it is I didn't really get that emotional because I, I can be fairly emotional, I, and I certainly got emotional at times on the trip. Um, but I was just I was too tired to to even kind of get even to well up, you know. And I gave mm-hmm. Charlie a big hug, and my wife was there, and Charlie's sister was there, and these two Costa Ricans, a father and son, were camping at the at the border because they had finished earlier that day. And uh, but it just didn't even sink in. We were just like more than anything, it was just relief. Um, but other favorite moment we had Charlie and I had some amazing New Mexican sunsets. I mean, truly spectacular. Um, and then in terms of like the route and the roads that we were on, there mm-hmm. were two sections that come to mind. There's a between Lagarita, which is not much of a town, but in southern Colorado, and Del Norte. You're riding south towards Del Norte. You ride in towards Penitente Canyon, which is a really well known uh, climbing rock climbing area. And it's gorgeous back there. And you ride this two-track that trends just slightly downhill, and it has these little whoops and stuff. And, and, and Charlie and I were just ear-to-ear grin because it was flowy for the first time. There's not much flow uh-huh, <laughs> in uh-huh. Tour Divide when you're talking about the riding that you do. And it was just flowy, and we were, like, giggling. And we're doing these little jumps and, and making fun of ourselves. You know, I said to Charlie, there's nothing more pathetic than a – a 20 day old bike packer trying to jump something. Cause you're, you know, you're on a rigid bike <laughs> and you're tired and your bags are flopping. Every, I mean, you just look like a junk show in the air, you know? Um, <laughs> but we had such a good time. And there's also a descent. It's, it's this real, again, it's flowy. It's smooth ish and flowy uh, into this little town of El Rito just before Abiquiu in New Mexico. And Charlie led on that one, and he he was just in the zone, man. And following him down, that was so fun. Wow. Um, yeah. And Charlie, I mean, the other real highlight, though, was riding with Charlie and Laura. I mean, Laura, I joke, is like the sister I never wanted now. And, and Charlie <laughs> is just one of my new best good buddies, you know. And he's a bit of a legend of Colorado mountain biking. He's, he's raced Leadville ten times and been on the podium five and – won 10 or no he's won four single speed titles there and wow. he's won montezuma's revenge you know he raced stamstead oh, nat ross and all those guys back in the day and um so getting to know charlie was was also a real highlight um excellent yeah yeah talk to me about surprises you know something that big you're going to get surprised over and over yeah. but like you know, something that you just, okay, I didn't expect that, whether it was positive or negative. Yeah. Uh, well, I'd say two things. Um, and, and both of them are positive. Um, it surprised me because the longest I'd gone was kind of 11 or 12 days. And when you got, for me, when I got past that, I, I struggled for a few days there, kind of getting into the groove. Day six, I had some low moments and some just energy, like, whoa, what's happening? But it really surprised me how much the, the body and the mind start to recover day to day from, from the rigors of the race. Um, you really can bounce back. You become elastic. Um, and, mm-hmm. and you forget that yesterday was a bitch. You know? You're like, oh, right. But now what's, what's ahead of me? And your mind, if, I think if you're doing it right, just continually looks 
forward and present, forward and present, forward and present, and almost never backwards, um, mm. which, is, which is cool. And then the other thing that surprised me, and it shouldn't really be a surprise because I've had past experiences, but um, the, the kindness of strangers. Um, yeah. the, the number of people that we bump, bumped into that wanted, to, you know, who are happy to give us a weather report or water or someone offered me cash. Um, <laughs> and I, I turned it down for the record. I was like, that's very kind. I mean, we do maybe look a bit homeless, but, <laughs> but we were, you know, um, but people are just the, um, I can think of one negative interaction with a motorist and who knows that situation. I'm not even going to dive into it. On the whole, people were awesome. And if they knew about the route, they were extra awesome and they were super encouraging. And I mean, you'd see on a pass in Colorado, there was a, a styrofoam cooler that said Tour Divide Racers. And there were Cokes and water and oranges in there. And you know, trail magic, <laughs> wow. as they call it, just happens. Um, it, it, it's People are good, is what I'm getting at. And yeah. it renews these sorts of ex, uh, adventures when you really do extend yourself and make yourself vulnerable, um, I find that that humanity looks out for itself, and, uh, and that's such a good feeling. That's really cool. Now there are some big hurdles to overcome. Just just if somebody wants to do the tour divide, you know, forget finishing it. You know, a lot of people, you know, getting that much time off work would be a struggle. Your situation's a little unusual in that, you know, you could justify this as work, um, but still you've got another big hurdle, which is being able to afford the trip itself. Sure, you're not paying for motels or hotels every night, but if I recall, you did have a couple in there. Um, and, you know, then there's then there's the fact that, you know, you're trying to feed yourself you know what? Five, six thousand calories a day—that yeah. can really add up. Yeah. I'm curious, what was your budget for doing the trip? Uh, I have a, a really generous wife, and um, very understanding and extremely supportive. I mean, my wife is my coach, literally giving me workouts day to day for the last four plus years. Um, and so, Tour Divide is was our mission. Um, so that, just that is a huge advantage over, I think a lot of people who it's a hard sell mm -hmm. to get your partner. If you have one on board and certainly if you have a family, it's time away from family too. And we don't have kids. So it, that that's eased in our situation. Um, it is tough to get that much time off, even for me. I mean, it, I had to do a lot of work ahead of time and I came home to a lot of emails to answer. Um, mm. it is not cheap. I mean, we joke that it's the world's most expensive free race. Cause there's no entry. Um, I mean, I think you pay, if you have your own spot tracker device, GPS tracker device, it's like 40 bucks to do the tracking. Um, but I, I can tell you that, um, I didn't have a hard budget. I mean, I was aware of like, I don't need to, you don't, you don't five star it up while you're out there. Number one, cause you don't have the option very often. Um, <laughs> but you are buying an, an, a ridiculous amount of food at convenience stores. And the, we all know that's not the cheapest place to buy food. Um, <laughs> and you are staying, for instance, I had to stay one night, uh, near Grand Teton national park and at a lodge and paid over $350 for a room that, I mean, I had, I was in a situation where I was ill and I had no choice. Like I, I needed to be indoors. I needed to take care of myself. And, um, but yeah, it, it's a lot of money though. And I spent well over $100 per day, well over, um, I, I probably spent almost that in food. Um, my last convenience store stop in Silver City before we headed for the actually second to last, I take that back, was fifty dollars at a CVS, and that's <laughs> that's all drinks and food. Um, that was nothing like oh, I think I'll get a you know treat for myself, or I, I, that wasn't even right. buying like sunscreen, you know. Um, yeah. It was just that much fluid, that much food, um, <laughs> that many five-hour energies. Um, and a Red Bull. <laughs> uh, and, and that actually didn't even get us all the way to the border. That got us to 45 miles from the border where we stopped and had a sandwich and a Coke and an ice cream. And you know what I mean? Uh, yeah. Yeah. So it's a lot of money. I, I spent um, over $3,000 on the trip. And that doesn't take into account the bike and all the gear and getting to Banff and getting back from the border. 
Right. Um, but yeah, you mentioned hotels because it was such a wet year. Um, I, I looked through and did the math. Um, I think I spent 15 nights in hotels, which is a lot. It's more wow. than I would prefer. Sure. Um, some of those are like rustic cabins or a hostel or things. Mm-hmm. You know, um, one is like a toaster house, a place you can stay for free along the way. Um, but that, that's a lot. Um, and part of that is taking care of yourself. And, and much of that is due to the weather upstairs. We upstairs up North, um, we joked that Montana was just the tour of lodges, you know, lodge to lodge because it was so wet. You just had to dry out. Wow. So, you know, if you had a drier year, that would help. Or if you're just super hardcore, that would help. Um, but it's not cheap. Yeah. Yeah. No, I didn't imagine that it was. So I was, I was curious about what sort of impact that had. But um, I just say this bike packing doesn't have to be expensive though. Tour mm-hmm. divide is anomalous. Let's remember that this is a total outlier as an event and as something I would encourage people to do. Bike packing can be cheap and fun and easy on the budget. Sure. I mean, if somebody's doing a three day trip, they can buy most everything that they're going to need ahead of time. And so totally. you can, you know, break stuff out from Costco or whatever. So yeah, you don't have to spend a million dollars. Yep. Uh, well, Nick, where can people read about your exploits at the tour divide? Um, well, my wife did a really great series of diaries on rambler.com, our website. So that's R A M B L E U R.com. And then I'm going to start writing about it, uh, as well as I, as I begin to process it. And then you can also write, read more of my writing um, by becoming a member of the Adventure Cycling Association. If you do that, you'll get access to our, our member magazine, Adventure Cyclist, where I uh, serve as the tech editor. So we've got a lot Excellent. of gear, gear reviews coming up based on what I used at Tour Divide. I can imagine. Cool, man. Well, hey, thanks for the time. Absolutely. It's my pleasure. Ah. Well, we got to figure out a way to get together before next year's NABs. I don't know. Maybe uh, maybe the QBP saddle run again? Perhaps. Yeah. I'll check in with them and see what's going on. Cool. Thanks, dude. Right. Talk right. to you soon. Have a good one. Thanks to my guest, Nick Legan, for joining me on the poll. To learn more about his work, you can visit rambler.com. Drop by and you might hear his opinion on Throwback Mountain Dew. Ooh, those are good. There will be a link in our show notes at Red Kite Prayer. That's it for this episode of The Poll. I hope you enjoyed it, and if you did, I hope you'll leave the show a good review on iTunes or wherever you get your media. Finally, if you're not already listening to RKP's other podcast, The Pace Line, co-hosted by Celine Yeager, a.k.a. The Fit Chick from Bicycling Magazine, I encourage you to give us a listen. Until next week, have a great ride.